Hey, everybody, welcome. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good day. Whatever it is. Hope you're all doing well. We're in uh, John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible here with you, I'm going to have somebody come down the aisles with a Bible and hand one to you if you need one. If you need a Bible, just hold up your hand, get their attention, and, uh, and then you can turn to John chapter 8, follow along with us. And we're looking at this um, great chapter, which we're not going to finish here today by any means, because um, it's a packed chapter. And what we're seeing as we go through this chapter is this contrast that's taking place um, between Jesus and the religious leaders, essentially. And what we're seeing is this difference now as Jesus is being confronted by these people. We're seeing the difference between this love of God and the legalness of, of man, the legalistic workings of man. So we're seeing all these contrasts, and that's kind of been the outline for us as we go through this chapter. What we saw last week is we just got into the first 11 verses, the difference between grace and law. And remember the scene, the context there was this woman that was caught in adultery, brought before Jesus, right? And we looked at, anybody remember how we like to title that rather than the woman caught in adultery? Rather, is the woman caught in grace. Wow, you guys nailed it. First service, crickets. You guys, you got it. Well done. Don't tell them that, but you, all right, well done. Second service. Yes. So, woman caught in grace. Because what all these men were trying to do was use this woman as a pawn simply for their own benefit of trying to trap Jesus. And it was just this, this showing and identifying this legalistic working of man versus this grace of Jesus. Then what we're going to be seeing today as we continue on in chapter 8 is this contrast between light and darkness, life and death. Next week as we wrap up chapter 8, we'll look at the contrast between freedom and bondage, son of God versus children of the devil, and then honor and dishonor. So look at chapter 8, verse 12, a great verse here that we have, a great proclamation and declaration from Jesus. And he says here, Jesus spoke to them again saying, John 8, verse 12, everybody with me? What does he say? I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now this is the second of these great I am statements that John is seeking to record seven of these I am statements that John, the writer of the gospel of John is looking to identify and use to reveal really the person of Jesus, his nature, his character. Anybody remember what the first of the I am statements was in the gospel of John? We've already covered it. I am the what? I am the what? Renee, if I had a candy, I'd give it to you. You want it right there. I'll give you my half-drunk water bottle here. You know, okay. I'm the bread of life, right? I'm the bread of life. John chapter 5. Am I right? John 5? Somebody help me? Okay. Hang on, Renee. Bonus points. John 6. Okay. That was a test for all of you. To know you don't just agree with the past. You got to make sure. John chapter 6. I'm the bread of life. So here's John now, all through the gospel of John, looking to identify these I am statements. And it's very important, very, very interesting, because what Jesus is saying when he reveals himself as this I am, he's using the same name that God used 
when he was revealing who he was to Moses, Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, when Moses is shocked and shuddering about having to go before the people and lead them. And he says, God, who shall I say sends me? Is, is going before me. God says, I am that I am. I am has sent you. That was the very name of God, this all existing one, that he will be all that you need him to be, everything that you need. God will be that for you. I am. And so Jesus now in saying, I am the light of the world, is revealing something very important here that everybody would have gotten. We'll, we'll talk about that as we continue on here. But just this declaration of this equality with God. Now, let's look at that a bit here. I'm the light of the world. That's kind of an interesting title, a reference to give. What, is, what are some things that light does? Well, here's some things that light does. And there'll be, I'm sure, many more you can add to this list. But first of all, it divides. Light divides. That's the very first words spoken by God or recorded by God in the Bible. God, Genesis 1, says, let there be light. As he's beginning the creation, he says, let there be light. And the light began to separate, you know, the darkness, right? And that's the very scene that we saw happening at the beginning of chapter 8. As these people, these accusers, brought this woman to Jesus. And Jesus bent down and began to write in the sand. And, and it says that the accusers began to leave from the oldest to the youngest. And what was left there was this woman, Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The light began to separate and divide. Secondly, we know that light displays. Jesus himself said to his disciples, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Matthew chapter five, verse 16. Very important. As Jesus is the light of the world, he's called us. And he said, you are the light of the world. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, listen, guys, I hope one day that you're going to also be light of the world. I'm really praying that one day you're going to get it and start to shine your light. No, he says, you are already. You're the light of the world. And all we need to be doing is reflecting that light of Jesus. Allowing him to shine in us and through us. But that light is to display, you see. Now, I've lost our connection. Let's see if I can get this back on our computer in the back there. So we want to see if our keynote is going. So the third thing that light does is that it directs. His light becomes something that's illuminated through the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 105 says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's very important, isn't it? We need that. We need that that light to begin to shine and 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 direct us. It's like when you go camping, right? You go camping and you're out in a tent and inevitably, middle of the night, you wake up and what? You need to go to the bathroom, right? And you're like, oh my God, it's so dark and there's no light. And you know that as you're making your trek to the bathroom, that might be a ways away, you got to have a good light. You got to illuminate that path to know where you're going, right? And to decide whether or not you want to use those campsite facilities or not once you shine the light in there. And you go, maybe not. But it directs. And then also we see that that light dispels. It, it dispels. The light drives away the unfruitful works of darkness. It exposes everything and, and, and some become attracted to it and some are going to repel it like, like a, a moth to the light. 
will be attracted to it. But then you turn on that light and cockroaches are just going to scatter. They're going to run. They don't want anything to do with it. So that light begins to dispel and, and, and remove the darkness. Like, like I said, we'd seen with that woman that was brought before Jesus. And many of the people began to walk away. And these things were all so clearly spoken by by John already. In John chapter 3, in fact, turn over to John chapter 3 with me, starting in verse 17. John three seventeen, because this really lays out for us so clearly, again, just that, that ministry, that work of Jesus, and the work of this light shining forth. John three seventeen says this, For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Verse 19 of John 3. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And again, how clearly that was illustrated in the life of Jesus. And these people that are coming to Jesus. And the people that we'll see Jesus is even talking to and confronting right now. As these people are coming to him. Jesus was being that light. He was exposing what was going on in people's lives. And some turned from it. Because it's too much to bear. They didn't want to deal with the reality and the truth of what that light was revealing. But then some become comforted by the light. They're at peace. They know it's God in their life. Remember, Jesus is speaking all this. Just, you know, a a day after that Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 7 was dealing with that Feast of Tabernacles that many people were coming towards. And at that Feast of Tabernacles, there was a special ceremony that was instituted as part of that feast where there was the lighting of lights in around the, the, the temple area and, and the lighting of the, this golden candelabra. And it was all to commemorate the time of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness when God began to lead them, direct them, and provide comfort for them by being that pillar of fire at night, directing them and leading them and comforting them through the wilderness journey. So now as the festival is coming to, it's already come to a close, perhaps those lights have all kind of gone out, but now Jesus stands up and says, listen, I'm the light of the world. I'm the true light here. I'm the one that's going to come and illuminate your lives and truth and lead and direct you. See, light is needed just for our existence. If the sun were to go out, life would cease. But much greater than the sun Jesus, the the Son of God, is the one that gives the light of life for all of humanity. And we don't need light just to exist. We need light just to be productive, right? Light's a wonderful thing, but when there's no light, we're not going to be seeing things clearly or be as productive. Many of you understood that very clearly just this morning when you got out of bed and you walked into the bathroom. And what would you do? You turned on the light. You had to see what you were dealing with, what kind of work needed to get done, right? Now, we would all love to get up and just go in the bathroom and just keep the light off and not deal with it, but then we're not dealing with reality and truth and knowing what needs to get done. We need the light on so we can make arrangements, preparations, do the work, whatever it's going to take to get us to church. 
and not to scare anybody in service, right? Light's important. Light is needed just for us to be productive and, and fruitful. And it begins to reveal to us the present situation, the need that's there before us and the reality at hand. You need the light. And so Jesus, so too, Jesus is needed in our lives, being that light for us, shining in, leading and illuminating these things for us. Now, like I said, in making these I am statements, those that were gathering around Jesus at this time are understanding very clearly what he's referring to, what he's implying, that he is he is claiming this unity with God, not just unity, but this claim to deity, saying that I am God. I'm the one, the source that can come and bring this light to you. Because I'm God. And so in saying these things, I mean, this is just infuriating these Pharisees even more so than they already are. We've already seen through the Gospel of John that they've already come to try to trap Jesus because they want to kill him. And so now Jesus continuing on pushing their buttons and making these claims of I am are just infuriating them all the more. And so notice what they say here, verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself and your witness is not true. Now, the Pharisees, they're trying to argue with Jesus on a legal point here of their law, which stated that every matter must be established or confirmed by two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 15 said that very thing. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So they're trying to refute Jesus' claim that he's only speaking, you know, for himself here that it's not valid doesn't count just as if you were to hear me say that yesterday i got a call from the canucks to come out to their training camp this summer and try out for the team you'd all be listening to me going yeah right for sure that happened there's no way right and and i would need somebody to back that up because you're going to look at that and go i'm not believing that I need somebody that's going to come and bring some proof on that. That's essentially what they're saying with Jesus. Listen, we're not going to just take your word for it. We want some, some proof here. Your, your witness, he's, they say, your witness is not true. And it's not that a person can't speak truth on their own, but they're going to want to see it established and confirmed by another witness. And that's what was in the very word of God. So Jesus says, verse 14, Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true for I'm not alone, but I'm with the father who sent me. So Jesus says here, listen, I'm the exception to that rule. Because of where he's come from. I know where I came from and where I'm going. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am from heaven. I'm from the Father. And I am one with the Father. And so my testimony, my witness is valid. And it's true. In fact, he's the very giver of truth. It's all wrapped up in him. So in other words, everything he says is absolutely true. Because we also know God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. So God cannot lie. So Jesus points out that their judgment, their judgment is always based on 
what they see, basically. It's according to the flesh. But sometimes there's things going on beyond what the eye sees, and they're failing to get it. They're looking at things from a very natural level. So everything Jesus is saying is just kind of going right over their heads, spiritually speaking. See, when Jesus says here that I judge no one at the end of verse 15, I judge no one, it, it may, it, we kind of look at that and go, hold on, Jesus, aren't you, aren't you the judge? I mean, you're the one that judges everything. What do you mean, I judge no one? And, and it could be what he's meaning here is that when he's come this first time, at his first coming, he's not coming to judge people and, and sentence people. He's coming to save people. He's coming with the, with the truth of the gospel and opportunity and invitation for people to respond to him, to accept him, to walk in the light, to come out of darkness and into the light that they might be saved. That's what Jesus has come to the, the, his first coming. At his second coming, yes, he's going to come and he's going to come with judgment. That's going to be the time when he's going to bring that judgment and usher in that kingdom of God. So it could very well be that's what he's meaning and implying here. I, I'm not here to, to judge anyone. I'm here to show the way for people to be freed from judgment and accept salvation and forgiveness of sin through him. Look at verse 17. Jesus goes on to say, it's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Well, I'm one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So Jesus, he's also showing, now listen, you're trying to throw the law in my face, but guess what? I've actually fulfilled the law. Not only because he's the author of the law, but he's fulfilling it in the sense that he's speaking on behalf of himself, but also the Father is speaking of him. This is why the, the Trinity is so important. Because within the Trinity, you have this threefold witness. And in fact, John chapter 4, I believe it is, has already revealed to us this fourfold witness of Jesus. Remember that, the, that it was John the Baptist. It was the very works of Jesus. The Father bore witness of him, and scriptures bore witness of Jesus. So there's that fourfold witness of Jesus. But here Jesus is simply alluding to the fact that within the Trinity, You've got the establishment of a testimony. Three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to do the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit comes to testify of Jesus. And they're all bearing witness of one another, establishing that need of a two to three witness and establishing that testimony here. So Jesus speaks of that here. John chapter 5 is what laid out that fourfold witness of jesus so another test for you to see if i was telling the truth but that's right so the father now we know as jesus is alluding to god the father in heaven born, bearing witness of him and we know throughout jesus ministry what do we see happen at, at different different times that that voice from heaven came down and said this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased so there's the father again just validating that work of the ministry so these religious leaders, they're, they're trying a different approach now. They're hearing what Jesus is saying. They go, well, all right, how do, we, how do we argue against that? So they try undermining now the very witness or the validity of the Father. And again, they're not, they're not thinking on spiritual terms. They're looking at things on a very natural level. Look at verse 19. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, 
you know, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. See, the Pharisees are all looking around now, and they're trying to ask Jesus, where is your father? And what they're doing, they're thinking about Joseph. Right? His, his earthly father, not really even his, his real father. They're going, where is Joseph? We haven't seen of him. He's not speaking up for you. He's not standing by you. Like, where is he anyways? In fact, this question was meant perhaps to be a bit of a cutting remark. It's perhaps as though they're asking, where is Joseph who had you illegitimately? Because remember, Mary was pregnant before they were even married. So they're, they're drawing into, into question, you know, the father. They're failing to see again what scriptures have already proclaimed in, in that virgin birth. That a human father wasn't necessary. And so they're bringing this into, into question now. But Jesus says, listen, if you had known me, if you had truly known me and, and believed in me, he's saying, then you would have known my father also. Because I testify of the father. I speak of the father. I come to do the will of the father. In fact, Jesus said to Philip, when Philip came to him and said, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Well, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Because he who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? See, no one can fully know God without knowing Jesus. Acceptance of Jesus is paramount to being in that right relationship with our father in heaven. And sad to see people today who will, who will claim to say, oh, I'm good with God. I've got a relationship with God, but yet totally dismiss Jesus. And they're missing it, you see. Because you cannot have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to the Father. And the more that you know God and his word, then the more that you will know Jesus, the more that these people should have been understanding and recognizing Jesus. But it all just simply showed that they didn't have a true relationship with God. Jesus came as that light of the world to illuminate the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life, no doubt. And all those that receive and follow Jesus have been delivered from darkness. As, as First Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says, we've been delivered out of darkness into his marvelous light. It comes through accepting him. And the more that we, we abide in Jesus, the more that we're going to know the Father. So these religious leaders, they're simply revealing and showing themselves to be in the dark. They're missing it. They're not getting it. Now, before we move on to our, our, our next section, life and, and death here, it's interesting because what we see there at the end of... Um, the end of chapter 20 is that as he was teaching at the temple in the treasury, no one laid hands on him. Now, the treasury was right beside the court of the woman. Remember, this is all just soon after the Feast of Tabernacles. It's possible there's still a lot of, uh, of you know, crowds still around, a lot of resident people still there and meeting together. So the court of the woman was kind of the most congested place. It was a place that everybody could kind of be together at once. And so there's a, a uh, perhaps a very large crowd here. If ever there was a time for these religious leaders to step in and do something in kind of the the distraction of the crowds, you know, and the the buffer of all the people around, 
it, it would have been at this point where they could have laid hands on him. But it, it says that no one laid hands on him. In other words, it's kind of referring that they were trying and attempting, but they could not because his hour had not yet come. Again, like we said, John continues to allude to that hour of Jesus, that the whole ministry and life of Jesus was operating on this divine timetable, that everything was laid out and orchestrated, and that nothing would happen before its appointed time. And the one that was appointing that time was God, who is in control of all things. Nobody could do anything apart from God allowing. And that's a good reminder for us how we need to take comfort in that, that nothing is able to happen apart from God choosing to allow that to happen. And if something's happening, then we have to recognize that God's got some purpose in it for us. You know, ask God, what, what is it that you're wanting me to learn and, 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 and maybe how you want me to grow in this situation that I'm in? Because nothing is happening apart from you allowing it. And we need to take that into consideration when we look at what's going on in the world. Because here's a bunch of people that are evil, that are looking to extinguish the light and put down Jesus, put him to death. There's evil at work here, but that evil is not able to be exercised apart from God allowing it to happen. And when we look at what's going on in the world and we say, man, the world is getting evil. Yes, yes it is. But we don't have to fear that and worry and wonder what's going on. We just have to go, Lord, all right. Well, you're allowing this for a reason, a purpose. I don't get it, but I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to fear. I'm going to just keep trusting you. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed upon you in and through these times. In this life of Jesus, as we see those words, his hour not yet come, are a continual reminder for us that God is in control in all things and at all times. He's never not in control, and we need to take comfort in that. So in this next section now, verse 21, we look at... Two destinies, two destinies for all people, one to heaven and glory, the other, sadly, to death in hell because of sin. It's this contrast between life and death. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. See, Jesus, again, he's got perfect knowledge of all things, things present and things to come. He knew exactly what direction his life was going in, what exactly would be coming around the corner. And in his foreknowledge, he knew the very direction of the lives of these people and the direction they were heading in. Now, when Jesus says there that I'm going away, he's speaking of a time that he would be going to heaven. He'd be crucified within six months. He'd be put in a tomb, he would be resurrected three days later, and then he would ascend to the Father 40 days after that. So Jesus knew that there would come a time when people would be seeking him so as to kill him and try to do away with his life, but he lays out for them that they will not be able to to go where he is going and that they will be the ones who will actually perish. Now that might sound harsh, that he lays it out for them. Jesus is not choosing that for them, appointing that to them. He's not saying, sorry, guys, I've appointed you here. He's given everybody that opportunity and invitation to receive him. Look at what Jesus will say to those who have believed in him. In John chapter 14, verse 104, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, 
Well, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. It's a little bit different than what he's saying to these people here, doesn't it? Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus isn't saying that harshly and, and determining that for them. He's saying this because in his foreknowledge, he understands that these people have hardened their heart towards Jesus and that they don't want to accept him. They don't want to walk in the light. They want to remain in their darkness like what John chapter 3 was telling us. But if people want to be where Jesus is and will be, well, the way has been provided. It's through repenting of sin and putting your trust in Jesus. He wants everybody to be comforted in that fact that when we believe in Jesus, that he's preparing a place for us that where he is, we might be also. But these religious leaders will not be able to go based on their sin and on their unwillingness to repent. And these people, again, they're not understanding what Jesus is speaking of. They thought it must be alluding to, to committing suicide or something. What is he talking about that he'll kill himself? They think he's, he's ready to commit suicide and just remove his life and they won't find him. And, and in the Jewish mind, for a person to commit suicide, it, it, it committed them to the lowest levels of Hades. It's kind of the most shameful thing. And so looking at this and, Looking at Jesus as though he's ready to just, you know, give up and die the most shameful way. They couldn't imagine that he was actually speaking about being in heaven. And he said to them, verse 23, here's the reality here. He says to them, you are from beneath and I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. See, these Pharisees, they should have had a better understanding of the things of Jesus and the things that Jesus spoke of. But they were walking in the flesh. They had no appetite for spiritual things. So everything that Jesus is saying, they're looking at things on that physical level. Like, like he said, you judge according to the flesh. They're, they're, they're natural. Look at what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I say the person that tries to read God's word before really giving life to the Lord, and sometimes you're reading through going, this makes no sense to me. But then when they commit their life to the Lord, and the Spirit becomes alive in them, suddenly they're reading through the word going, oh my goodness, this is incredible. Suddenly the, the spiritual man is alive in them, not just the natural man, where these things are illuminated to them. But these Pharisees, they're walking according to the flesh, according to the old man, the natural man. These things are not making sense to them. And they're sadly resembling the works of the enemy rather than the things of God. Jesus says, you're from beneath. Meaning they belong more to this natural world. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. And to be this world, which ultimately speaks of this worldly system that is in opposition and in rebellion to God. To be of this worldly system is to be an enemy of God. James 4 verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now don't, don't misunderstand that because 
then you read verses like John 3.16 and says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So when we talk about the world in that verse, we're talking about the people. And understand, we're to have a love for the people. Don't read a verse like this and go, oh, I'm not to be a friend of the world, so I'm just going to isolate myself and not have any conduct with the world and the people. No, that's not what we're saying. We're to have a love for the people of this world and desire to, again, reflect that light and love of Jesus. But what James talks about here, friendship with the world, is, is friendship with the world system. That's in opposition to God, revealing itself to be an enemy to the things of God. We're not to be that way. But yet, sadly, this is where these people were more reflecting. They are from beneath, Jesus says. They're following the things of this world. How about you? What are you following today? Are you resembling more those people that are, are from beneath or from above? Have you set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth? As Colossians 3 tells us. And since these people were following the patterns of this world, that's in opposition to God, then Jesus simply says that you're going to die because of your sin. But understand this, there's still room that Jesus is giving. I love that heart and that grace of God, even, even with his enemies, even with the very ones that are trying to kill him, Jesus is giving them opportunity because he says there, notice that in verse 24, therefore I said to you that, you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's letting them see what it's going to take for them to have life. You need to believe that I am he. And interesting, in the original Greek, that word he, it's not in the original language. It's in italicized in our Bibles, meaning it's not in the original language, which in other words, Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am Unless you believe that I am God, the only one that is able to save you from your sins. This is what Jesus is saying. He's giving them an opportunity, again, another declaration of his deity. The all-existing one, the, the, the great I am, the only one that's able to be all that you need in your life to save you, heal you, forgive you, and give you life. You know, many of the cults today, what do they do? They, they try to twist things around and say that Jesus never declared himself to be God, that Jesus really isn't God. He's a created being. So many of the cults have that false kind of teaching, which is so, so damning because Jesus himself says, unless you believe that I am God, you're going to perish. See what these cults are doing, I think unwillingly, is that they're, Sentencing people straight to hell by giving that false assertion that Jesus is not God and never claimed to be. Jesus did, and it's right there. And it's upon our faith in that that will save us. Where do you stand today when it comes to Jesus? Because I can guarantee you that today there are thousands sitting in churches all around the world who say, oh, I love God, and think that, I'm doing okay because I'm at church and I go to church regularly, but yet have no faith in Jesus. They have no relationship with Jesus and they're missing it. It's the difference maker. Have you put your trust in Jesus? That's what he says. Unless you believe that I'm he, that I am, that I'm God, 
the one that's able to save you. And that belief is not just a, a head knowledge. It is a belief that translates into action where you have literally taken that step of full trust and confidence in Jesus. Like that illustration we gave a few months ago of, of Charles Blondine, that great tightrope walker that would go across Niagara Falls. And he'd go across carrying different things and just continue to do more amazing and amazing feats. And people were just in awe. One day taking a wheelbarrow across on a tightrope full of bricks. He came back to the crowd on the other side and said, how many believe I can carry a person in this wheelbarrow across? And we said, yes, we believe. And then he said, who's going to be my first volunteer? Nobody was willing to do it. See, on one hand, they'll say, yes, we believe you can do it. But they're not willing to take that step and say, I'm going to put my full trust in you. This is going to be more than just intellectual or verbal declaration. I'm going to show by my commitment to you. That's what that word belief is all about, that John is, is alluding to time and time again in his Gospels. It's all about believing. These very things are written that you may believe, be committed to, fully trust in confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Look at verse 25. Let's wrap this up here. Then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. So for these people to hear Jesus use that term again, I am, that, that in the Greek, ego, me, I am. That was a lot for them to take in. It would have shocked them right to the very core to just hear those words that were only attributed to God the Father. And now they respond in contempt. And they say, who are you? And, and it can be more really translated, who do you think you are? You ever had anybody say that to you? Usually that's not in like, uh, I want to get to know you more. It's like, who do you think you are talking to me like that? Where do you get off doing that? That's kind of what they mean. That's what they're saying to Jesus. Who do you think you are? claiming this saying that about you and jesus almost nonchalantly just kind of replies saying i'm just exactly who i said i've been all along nothing's changed i've not tried to hide this at all this is exactly what i've been saying from the beginning and you are just unwilling to receive it and allow it to change you he's always claimed that he was the father or of the father in heaven that he is equal with god his message hasn't altered at all he's spoken consistently and has spoken that truth from the very beginning so he just kind of passes it off listen nothing's changed you guys just aren't willing to hear it take it in and allow yourself to be changed by it and jesus says again that there's coming a time when you will know undoubtedly that i am who i say i am verse 28 Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. See, what Jesus is speaking of here, being lifted up, is the time that he'll be lifted up on the cross. It's seeing how he willingly went to the cross how he took the pain of the cross how he died that death so submissively and it's through that that'll cause people to see that he is indeed the i am remember what we read in in matthew chapter 27 
Verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. There were those that were witnessing it all who could only come to the conclusion after all the things that they had seen and how Jesus took this, how he, he bore all this upon himself and the events that took place, truly, there's no doubt, no question, this was the Son of God. I, they've never they never seen anything like it. Jesus lived that life that was all about pleasing the Father to the point of going to the cross, the most painful, humiliating way to die and submitting himself to that death. But again, he did all that as, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells, tells us, he endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Jesus knew what it would accomplish. Life for all of us. See, Jesus gave up heaven so that we could gain heaven. So that where he was, we could be also. He did all that for you and for me. It was all part of the Father's plan that Jesus came to carry out. Maybe you've been going through a time in your life where you've not been seeing Jesus clearly. Or understanding the things of God. As Jesus says, that when I'm lifted up, then you'll know that I'm he. That word lifted up not only implies that idea of being lifted up on the cross, but it's that idea of being exalted, glorifying. That was truly the height of Jesus' glory. In a sense, on this earth, as he gave himself sacrificially for us. But maybe you're here today and you have not been seeing Jesus clearly, understanding him. and Maybe you've been hindered in that time of just exalting Jesus in your life. I believe that as we seek to glorify Jesus and exalt Jesus and lift him up in our lives to the point where he's the one that's preeminent in all that we do, that our lives are living for his glory and for his praise. I believe that as we lift him up in exaltation and praise that we'll begin to see him more. That we'll see him more clearly and know him more dearly. That's what he has for us. Maybe you're at that point where that just hasn't been happening in your life. And you've gotten away. And you've been thinking more on those natural things like these Pharisees were. And you've been experiencing more darkness than light. More valleys of death than you have of life. Let's seek to exalt Jesus in our lives. Lift him up and say, Jesus, I want my eyes to be just upon you, looking to you and glorifying you. It says in verse 30, to close this out, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. As they saw this man full of grace and truth, many believed in him. And yet we also know that many continued on not believing in him. Even after his death, there were those that were the religious sect that were continuing to try to cover it up. Why? Because their hearts just, were hard. And the more they hardened their hearts, the harder it became to truly accept Jesus. Where's your heart today? Have you hardened your heart in any way? Say, nah, I just, there's too much that's going on in my life to really give it all over to Jesus. Because the more that you harden your heart, the harder it becomes to just accept him, receive him, to know him. Today, maybe you need to pray, Lord, soften my heart. Because I want to be 
those that believe and receive. And, and not just believe and receive, but continue to walk now in that light and life that you have for me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And we're going to just move in a time of worship and prayer. And just allowing this time just to wait on the Lord. These are what we want to do to close our services. Instead of just being in a hurry to pray and, and leave. But just to take some time to allow the Lord to move in our midst. And just have this opportunity to ministry. And so we're going to have people in the front that will be available to pray with you. If we can pray for you. Maybe, maybe there's some things that you've heard today. That you just need to ask the Lord to just deal with. And maybe you want someone just to pray alongside you in those things. Just take advantage of that and just come to the front. And with those people and some in the back too. Just to pray with you and for you. Maybe you just need to respond to the Lord and what he's been speaking in your heart today. And so let's just take this time just to minister before the Lord and to wait on the Lord. So let's stand together. And then have our prayer teams come and make themselves available in the front and the back here. And just... Uh, while we're singing, just make your way up and, and just ask them to come alongside you in prayer and just to, uh, um, take that time just to respond to the Lord here today.